Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm actually very excited about the guests that we have today because I think we're going to be able to learn a lot about e-commerce and then also a lot about the challenges that e-commerce platforms are facing nowadays. So I guess without further ado, I want to welcome Amit Sharma from Narver. Welcome on board today. Thank you so much for having me on your show. So uh, Amit, let me let me ask you this. How because originally you're from India, from whereabout? From Mumbai? Yes. No, I did my uh, college, my undergrad from Bombay um in early nineties. Um yeah, and that's how and I spent my uh, childhood in India actually growing up. Got it. So at what point did you decide to come and do your MBA at Duke University? So I left uh, India in uh, late 90s and I came to the US um, and I was back then working as a data engineer in um, in financial services actually um, and then uh, in early 2000 I wanted to be more closer to the business uh, and understanding how we can make an impact uh, from uh, from the re regular operations perspective and that led me to say okay I need to learn more about um, the fundamentals of business, uh, which was the key reason for me to um, going to Duke for my MBA. Got it. So you were already uh, for a couple of years. So, so in which year did you actually go to Duke? So I was working almost for um, eight years before I went uh, for uh, MBA. Got it. So what year did you graduate? I graduated in 2006. 2006. So what about, what about, because you went, you were working at City and then you were also a consultant. So, I mean, it's a pretty diverse there. So why did you make the choices of going to City and then being a consultant on the data engineering side? So for me, um, you know, <laughs> not many people remember back then, a um, lot of investment was going in data and, uh, and systems. So making sure uh, uh, systems are compliant for uh, 2000 for uh, making sure the dates and, and infrastructure is in place for uh, changing of all those things that are needed. Um, and uh, working uh, as uh, a consultant gave me the opportunity of, you know, being a little bit of independent, 
but also making sure you're adding value uh, to your customers that you're serving. So that was my early exposure to how as an uh, independent uh, consultant that you can work, uh, which is a company of one uh, way back then. And I'm sure that you enjoyed the freedom rather than reporting to someone else. So was it, did you find it difficult after getting your MBA to, to go and work for William Sonoma? Um, no, actually, uh, you know, working for uh, yourself also brings responsibilities, right? So uh, for me, uh, uh, William Sonoma was helpful because now I was able to take the technology and data that I was using in financial services and apply that to uh, supply chain and logistics which is also very metric-driven, very process-driven function that I was never uh, familiar with. But more importantly, you know, being an engineer by education, uh, having that problem mind, having problem mindset, problem-solving mindset was actually uh, was compelling for me to see what is behind the scenes uh, in the retail industry and how products move from point A to point B. And that curiosity led me to joining William Sonoma in their supply chain and their operations group. Really cool. And for the people that are listening, how do you define supply chain? Yeah, I mean, supply chain on a highest level is flow of goods uh, and information from uh, a one point to the second point, right? So um, to bring it more closer, when you order something online uh, or in, in a store, uh, those goods have to move I mean, in, in some cases from warehouses to customers' doorsteps or in other cases from manufacturing where, uh, plant to um, the warehouses or to the stores. And, and not only goods, but information also has to move so that things are uh, kept up to date. And that's how on a highest level uh, I think about supply chain. Got it. And, and you actually worked for three companies, kind of like getting your... Uh, experience around the supply chain world, and that was William Sonoma, that was Walmart, and then also Apple. So, what did you learn from each one of those? Because we're going to talk about your experience as a founder and the journey with Narber. But before we do that, I'd like to kind of like dig in a little bit deeper into those three companies that you worked in, and what was the experience or the takeaway that you got from each one of them? Yeah, and then you know, all these companies are very different. Uh, and a lot of different learnings that uh, I had in all of these uh, places. So at Williams-Sonoma, I joined as a supply chain analyst. What I was able to learn is that, you know, my previous experience and as an education in um, data and engineering, how do you apply to a, a altogether different function and not only apply that, but drive some meaningful results. So that was my first foray into... Uh, supply chain and retail industry. So a lot of the fundamentals, like, you know, what are the implications on um, customer experiences? What are the ways that supply chain drives cost or potential revenue for a business? So a lot of my learnings uh, and and uh, understanding the, uh, the industry happened at Willem-Sonoma. Got it. So what about what about Walmart and, and, and Apple? Yeah, I mean, Walmart, uh, as you know, uh, literally one of the largest companies on the planet um, with a massive supply chain infrastructure. Um, so whatever uh, that you will do, it will be doing at massive scale. So having the uh, initial uh, learning and understanding of supply chain that I had at Williams-Sonoma um, 
app, uh, Walmart gave me the opportunity to apply that at scale um, and, and do that in a way that you can actually touch millions of consumers or shoppers. And especially for Walmart, where the infrastructure is so uh, large, where customers are buying online, uh, shipping to their stores to get picked up or you're returning in your store. A um, lot of these things uh, was really uh, interesting to solving these problems at a, at, at a massive scale. Right, right. And the um, and, and, and then, so your last uh, stop before you actually went to, to, to do your own thing, that was Apple. So here you are in probably one of the coolest companies to work for right now. I mean, definitely one of the most valuable companies in the world. And actually, it hit a trillion dollars in value uh, not not long ago. I mean, it's a it's a really big, um, I would say, leap of faith, not to go from like being at the top with like the top company to really like starting your own. So, what were kind of like the insights and what do you see working at Apple? You know, that kind of like triggered that uh, I would say that bridge into entrepreneurship. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, leaving, um, you know. Walmart and joining Apple was, you know, one of the pivotal decisions that I made uh, in my career and same thing, uh, leaving Apple and starting the company. So to set the context, you know, when I joined um, Walmart, um, iPhone didn't even exist. Um, Amazon Prime didn't even exist. We're talking about late, you know, uh, 2006 and 7 and 8. Back then, these were, you know, almost 10 years ago, 12 years ago, um, a very different uh, environment and ecosystem compared to what we have. So a lot of focus in retail and commerce was how do you actually make it efficient, better, and cheaper. Um, thanks to how uh, consumers see that now, that experiences do matter. Um, and convenience are important uh, for consumer. And what drew me towards Apple was Apple always believed in building an ecosystem, not only the products, but experiences around it. And, uh, and uh, I, when I left uh, uh, Walmart and joined Apple, I was joined Apple as a product manager. So not uh, as a uh, operational leader, but as a product manager. So that gave me the opportunity not working on uh, the back office logistics or supply chain operations, but very closer to consumer like how consumers are thinking about these experiences. So for me, it was retooling myself, getting exposure to the customer journey or in the e-commerce journey that I haven't done before was something new that I can learn, but also apply um, the now uh, myself and end-to-end -end, uh, customer touch points in the commerce world. That was my interest and draw towards Apple. And second part was that Apple is a truly global company. Um, their, their vision is that how do we offer consistent and seamless experiences no matter how uh, and where the consumers are, whether they are in the US or in Europe or in APAC. So understanding global consumer behavior and how do you serve that consumer needs in regional market was something that I have never done before uh, when, when I was at William Sonoma and, and at Walmart. So those were the two key reasons uh, for me to join Apple. So what was the, uh, because at Apple you were for, for you know, just, um, just a couple of years. So what was the process of incubation of the idea of behind Narver? And, and 
just walk us through that day, you know, until you get to the day where you're like, I'm going to give my notice. I'm going to take the leap of faith and I'm going to make it happen. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as, as you mentioned, um, I know Apple is literally the Fortune One company and known as one of the most admired company when it comes to product and customer experience. Um, as big as Apple is, believe it or not, you know, there are areas that um, they also partner uh, in broader ecosystem for new solutions and technologies. And one of the things that, you know, uh, Apple was looking for uh, in the industry is that how do we offer um, differentiated experiences for shoppers who are coming to apple.com and placing orders directly. So you can buy an amazing phone, whether it is on apple.com or Apple retail stores or through other providers, whether it's AT&T or you know, Best Buy. But why anybody will come and buy from apple.com? And in order to offer differentiated or unique experiences, there has to be more than products uh, that Apple is offering online. And one of the areas that I was looking at that, how do you offer end-to-end -end customer experience after they place an order? So, which means, hey, once I place my order, where is my order? When can I get it? What are your returns policies? Can I exchange it? All of these pieces uh, were not completely seamless or readily available uh, uh, even at Apple. And when we looked around, how do we make that happen? It was really difficult to building all those pieces. And that was the moment for me that as a consumer, I can totally see the need. Um, but even for companies like Apple, it was not easy to bring all that together uh, and make that uh, happen for their customers. And when I looked around, um, we didn't see any technical platform or a solution that would even meet the needs of uh, in a big corporation. And that was the moment for me that you know, if big companies can't solve it, there must be a need for the rest of the retail industry um, to offer these experiences to end consumers. And that was the moment I decided that, okay, this may be the place where I can bring my supply chain experience and product experience to build something that could be relevant in the industry. And at this point where you make the decision that that is time to, to, to make this happen, I mean, did you have a family or, I mean, because we're talking about already like you had stable jobs for quite a bit and and it was like a getting into a serious uncomfortable zone based on what you had been used to so um so how was that for you no <laughs> then you're exactly right so there are multiple things that as an um entrepreneur you have to think about um apple is still an amazing place where you're working on projects and initiatives uh in an innovative way that comes to life two years from now, three years from now, you're always working on long-term uh, exciting initiatives. So leaving something that, that you believe in to starting something new is a big leap of faith. That's for sure. Um, secondly, yeah, I mean, um, you know, in my, uh, uh, you know, stage and, 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 and personal life, you know, uh, back then, uh, I obviously, uh, I, I was married and, and I had uh, three kids and you have, um, you know, family responsibility and the opportunity cost of leaving uh, an exciting job and uh, compensation and going from the scratch. So that is definitely a second big consideration, the risk that you can take. But the third part, which is the most important part, is not that you have the 
conviction or you have an idea making sure your family is fully supportive and behind you because that if if that is not there then it, it may not be a long term sustainable way of committing to an idea if if you are not able to bring everybody uh, in your family along with me so i would say the third one was more, very important to me and i am very fortunate that my wife uh, supported wholeheartedly on my decision to leaving apple and starting the company when i had my youngest uh, kid back then was 6 months old and that that means having three kids at home and starting a you know a whole new job which becomes a new baby so fourth baby uh, when you already have a busy uh, and and a lot of commitment at and on the personal front absolutely i mean i i think you are a superhero amit for for really going at it with uh, with three kids and as as you will say uh, kids are also i mean now you had four babies with a uh, uh, narvar but the difference with the other ones is say uh, for example when with your kids is that there is no such thing as an exit and you only break even literally when they let you sleep at night so uh, <laughs> that's that's kind of like the the difference that i always say so i guess the um in narvar so let's did, did you give yourself like i mean you had obviously some savings so but did you give yourself like maybe like six months to a year to see if this was going anywhere or what was that you know the i mean how did you think about starting this thing out i mean was there like any type of runway that you gave yourself yeah i mean you know when you get that and and uh, you as a follow a fellow uh, entrepreneur can and and um, you know resonate with this is that you know you have your entrepreneurship high that hey you believe in the idea so of course everybody is going to believe in idea and of course this is going to work out amazingly well so yes you know i thought yeah i will leave the company uh, was was not to work you know i have a tremendous experience in the industry i understand both retail and operations and product um and uh, there's no solution so yeah within 6 months product will be in the market and you will get funding right away um boy i was wrong um uh, it doesn't work uh, that way you know you still start something new and uh, you know you you have to you know uh, build your credibility all over again by showing the product and implementing the product and showing the results so to answer your question yes i thought everything will work on in in 6 months but it turns out from leaving and starting the company to getting the first round of funding it, it took me 18 months because first cycle i did not get where i wanted to be right right and 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 so what was the founding team so what ended up being the founding team of narvar who joined you early on yeah i mean founding team i mean this is another thing that uh, you know as an entrepreneur uh, if you have a vision and and if you have an idea you have to now bring uh, other people along with you and in my case um, i was looking for a technical person who can be with me uh, and and uh, enabling those experiences and and uh, building the product and uh, to the reason for me that was important because i wanted to focus on the uh, on the enterprise uh, segment of the business that requires building uh, a core platform which takes uh, you know, longer than uh, on an average so building and investing in the team was important so um, initially i had few uh, three four people with me for first uh, first year uh, in terms of building uh, the uh, the initial platform 
So, so I mean, it's interesting what you mentioned here because typically you see more, um, I would say, business people starting companies that really require technical people rather than technical people that are looking for business people. And and it's like when you're an engineer, I mean, you're literally getting bombarded with uh, with let's say proposals for a partnership to start a business and stuff like that. And and engineers are very hard to really enroll. So what was that process of of really enrolling this uh, this, this 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 folks with the engineering background? You know, that's that's a really good question. And this is where you know I was fortunate uh, to keep uh, my relations from the industry. Being in the industry for almost now, um, when I started the company, you know, 15 plus years after, and I've been I've been working um, uh, in the industry. So keeping that relationship uh, was, came uh, quite handy for me. So I was able to go back, um, and in my case, believe it or not, um, I kept relationship from 15 years. Uh, and one of the first engineers or architect, the technical architect, joined. Worked with me in Citibank in two, uh, in 1996, um, so that's where I and I was fortunate to have a pool of connections, people who uh, knew me and they were also uh, excited about how I was thinking about solving the problem and where it could bring value uh, for retailers. So I was able to use my network um, to bring the uh, initial team together. So what ended up being the business model for Narva, Amit? No, that's a uh, good question. So for Narva's business model is that how can we help brands and retailers to provide convenient shopping experiences online? Today, um, as a platform, uh, we work with enterprise companies. So our business model is it's a SaaS platform fee for brands and retailers to leverage some of the product and capabilities that we offer. Um, that are in terms of how do we make customer communication better? How do we make returns and exchanges easier? How do we provide more shipping options? Those are some of the services we offer through our SaaS uh, model platform. Got it. So then, so then, what were some of the early days? So once you got you know the team and and you know you guys were starting to push things forward. So what were some of the early days like? Some of the early days uh, are as as a founder and entrepreneur, you are doing obviously everything, but you are keeping few stakeholders in mind. Um, one set of stakeholders are your prospective customers or your customers, making sure you're talking about who you are and what offer a product that you offer in the market. So talking to them constantly, getting their feedback. Second set of uh, stakeholders are your employees, constantly. Talking to your employees, keeping them up to date where where the business is headed, or or recruiting uh, the new team members, um, and then the third uh, stakeholders are in terms of your investors, uh, telling them uh, how um, uh, what are you working on and how you're making progress, so that when the time is right, um, you know you are able to sit down and and talk about uh, investment. So early days is that um, they are quite chaotic. Uh, you are thinking about all these three, four case, uh, key stakeholders and making sure you keeping, uh, you know, telling them what the vision is and how much you are making progress. And of course, while balancing your personal life to the extent you can manage. 
And talking about investors, Amit, I think I think that I, I I think it took you guys a little bit from the founding date, which was about 2012, to really starting to get the institutional guys involved, which was more like towards 2014, 2015. So can you walk us through what was the fundraising or the different financing cycles of the business? Like, let's say, like what what you were required or what were you hearing from investors to accomplish in in order to really get that funding in place? Yes. So I know our first series A round was in 2014. Um, and, you know, for investors, um, they would like to see not only an idea, uh, but you know how actually it is being in you know, a proof points, and that proof points come in few areas. One is showing the customers how customers are using it, how they are uh, customers are seeing the value of it, and how much of that uh, value you can actually apply to your own business model. So customer value, customer traction, business model that you can build on top of it, um, and then you can also talk about it's not just you, you know. The team that is coming together because uh, you know you can only do so much uh, individually. So how you are able to attract and recruit team uh, is the second key area that um, they are looking for. And third is that okay, what are the future milestones that company has in mind? Because if you are asking for certain amount of money, how do you plan to use that money? And what opportunities that is going to that unlock in your future milestones. So these are the few areas that investors would like to see that um, that entrepreneurs are able to succinctly um, walk them through and describe uh, their vision. Got it. And in total, how much money have you guys raised to date? To date, we have uh, raised closer to $70 million. Closer to 70. And I see you guys have really, really great investors. I mean, I see here Axel, I see Battery, Salesforce was a recent investor, uh, Freestyle Capital, Crosscut Ventures, uh, and, and, and quite a few more. But, but here you are, a foreigner, and I'm a foreigner too, so I know how hard it is to build a network and, you know, the culture difference and stuff like that. So, I mean, how, how do you get these guys involved? How do you find them? How do you close them? You know, especially for people that are listening that, Maybe are just like you and I, where we came here, we had no network and different culture. So, so how do you come about that? Yeah, I mean, my take has been always keeping um, that learning mindset and, and and keeping that curiosity going, and that allows you to talk to people without hesitation, and then you know, uh, telling about you know, your perspective, your take on a problem, uh, issue, or challenges, and how you are solving for it. Um, and, and you know, when you are being authentic about uh, things that you are looking to get uh, back, whether it is advice, input, or feedback, or a connection, or a request, people are generally uh, in Silicon Valley and in the Bay Area are open to helping you out. And it starts with you being genuine and authentic about it and and you know i am uh, not an extrovert person it takes me an effort uh, but if you uh, you know if you um, go out there and don't hesitate to fail and keep trying and just be yourself um, it takes an effort and, and it takes a, a per perseverance and just like any entrepreneur those are things you need to build uh, and scale a business 
while open to you know um, making some mistakes knowing that you will learn from it and 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 you know keep that focus aware where you know you're learning from every opportunity or every interaction so on your last day around uh, amit you uh, you actually raised that in late 2018 but i wanted to ask you i mean it's interesting that you got i mean you were used to like really onboarding the traditional vc but then all of a sudden salesforce comes along why would someone like salesforce want to invest in something like this so salesforce you know actually pioneered the saas business so uh, instead of buying a perpetual software licenses um, salesforce pioneered saas subscription and you know they uh, have a very vibrant uh, ecosystems of hundreds of companies that they have invested um and for us um it's not just how they have built you know one of the amazing uh, industries and pioneered the industry but how can we learn from other companies that they have invested so same thing uh, for uh, for us to be with other fellow entrepreneurs or early stage or growth stage companies give us access to uh, that network in a much more curated uh, and and a and a thoughtful fashion that was one of the draws for us uh, to have salesforce ventures as um, one of our investors i'll give you one specific example um, you know company uh, started in the us um, roughly 90% of our revenues still comes from the us but if we want to be a, a a true enterprise platform that means we need to be a global company and for last couple of years you know we have expanded to europe and we have couple of offices there but we do not operate in apac today so for us to understand the markets the behaviors the the nuances in in apac market is important for us to be successful um and one of the ways we can do that is actually have getting some feedback and guidance from salesforce and in this particular case as we are now launching uh, uh, our operations in japan salesforce has been extremely helpful is giving us the broader understanding of the uh, market the players the ecosystem so that we can avoid making mistakes that other growth mode companies actually make mistakes when they enter into new markets that is one of the good examples where it has nothing to do with uh, their product it has nothing to do with money but the the network and the uh, help that we can get will be immensely helpful for us to be successful in japan that's great so so for the people that are listening uh, can you share how big is narvar today of course so narvar uh, in terms of business uh, we are roughly 300 people um more roughly i would say 225 or so are based here in the us uh headquartered in san francisco uh, and then we have uh, uh you know three offices in europe london munich and paris and then we have now uh, a team in um, uh, india as well which is also helping us growth in our product and engineering so that's on the number of people and team um in terms of business um we have roughly 600 enterprise customers and we continue to grow uh, at uh, roughly at 70% growth rate year over year that's really nice really nice and as you're thinking about like the different offices and, and locations as you were saying 
Are there like a specific roles that you're having in each satellite office or is it like all over, all over spread across? Like how, how are you seeing about like the roles on each one of these offices? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So um, every business is different for us. Uh, we serve enterprise businesses. What that means is uh, knowing and understanding enterprise businesses in market. Uh, that means we have to have our sales, marketing, our account or our customer success teams and implementation teams in region. So all the offices I mentioned, if we are serving our our customers there, then we need to be closer to our customers. So a lot of our go-to market teams are in, uh, in these uh, different offices. Uh, and then uh, the second set of things we think about is product and engineering. Uh, so uh, up until last year or, or 18 months, all of our products and engineers uh, and designers are based in San Francisco. Now, in last couple of years, we have now scaled the second location from the R&D and from product engineering perspective that is in India. So the two locations are acting as our uh, product and engineering R&D work and rest of the offices are our go-to market offices. You know something really interesting as uh, as you were talking that I was that I was really present to is that you know you mentioned that you have 600 brands. I mean I believe you are a, you have clients like Levi's or Sephora. So if there's someone that has a finger on the pulse of e-commerce is you. So what are the challenges saying that that e-commerce brands are facing today? Yes, I mean it starts with consumers. So consumers uh, now have lot of choices of buying the favorite brands and, and, and products they want to buy, whether it is online or through app or through in-store. So they have a lot of choices. What they're expecting is conveniences. And, and how do you actually, as a brand or a retailer, often conveniences and customers are living in the moment and they need instant gratification. So there's a lot of choice available. They expect the expectations are getting higher and higher and they're looking for conveniences. So for brands to survive, not only to survive, to thrive, they have to offer you know, convenient experiences across all these different channels. And that's where um, they need to invest and in making those experiences meaningful and seamless for, for uh, end consumers. And, you know, one thing that, that I thought it was really interesting is I'm here in New York City and, you know, I can't help but but feel bad for all these uh, retail stores that are shutting down. You know, it's um, it's 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 unbelievable. It's, uh, you know, you go around Soho, for example, and it's just like empty space after empty space. So how are you seeing the the world of retail as well evolving? Retail world is just you know fascinating. You know you're right. Uh, you know you are seeing a lot of store closures, uh, and that is impacting local communities. Uh, and where you can get some of the personalized or or you know um, more differentiated experiences in in physical space. Sometimes you don't get that online. So there, there you see that store closure is actually impacting communities on one hand. On the other hand, we are seeing the web native companies that companies who started online, they're also opening a lot of stores. So if you look at Warby Parker, you know, in New York, whether it is, you know, um, Birchbox or Bonobos, so these web native companies are also opening stores. So uh, for 
brands and retailers have to figure out how do they actually have that immersive experience that they can offer online, but the tactile and more personalized experiences in store as well. They have to get that mix right, and that will actually drive um, more um, interesting and immersive experiences in store. So, although the stores are closing, we will see uh, companies have to reinvent them while staying authentic to their brand in terms of offering physical locations for retailers, for consumers to actually come and interact. I mean, the other piece, Alandra, I will mention to you, and you are in New York. Um, yeah. And you, and maybe a couple of weeks ago, the whole Hudson Bay, uh, Hudson Yards, um, is a multi-billion dollar investment where, you know, using technologies and bringing retail and commerce in a very immersive fashion where, you know, you see um, the community and uh, retail industries are investing in the next generation of physical stores as well. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. I mean, they say the Hudson Yards project, I mean, it's massive. And, and, and also to what you were alluding, I think that the it's all about experiences uh, because people are really all about convenience nowadays and whatever they can get online, you know, they're just going to get it online. But if you can provide some sort of experience that you cannot get into the in, in the online world, you're definitely going to keep it in the offline. So I think that as from a trend perspective and the people that I'm speaking with, those that are able to really embrace the experience factor offline, those are the ones that are going to be able to, to, to really thrive. So I want to ask you something here, uh, Amit. I mean, from what you're seeing and, and especially for all the uh, entrepreneurs that are that are listening to us, how would you say that shoppers are changing the way they relate to brands? You know, more than ever, they are very demanding and they expect a lot, not only in products, as you mentioned, but services and experiences as well. So as you are building uh, these new solutions and ideas, entrepreneurs have to keep that in mind. The other piece to keep in mind that not just to think about the shoppers, but as entrepreneurs are building these solutions, they have to think the same thing in mind for the businesses as well. Because when we are providing these new capabilities and solutions to, uh, to enterprises, they are also individuals. They also have the same expectations in the B2B world as well. So oftentimes we think about consumer but may not offer the similar uh, needs that businesses have. So I would say keeping both those things are important uh, in perspective in offering the next generation technology or solutions uh, in the commerce space. Got it. And and going back to, to your experience and to your journey as an entrepreneur, I mean, now Narver, I mean, it's, a, it's definitely a rocket ship. You guys are uh, experiencing success. But I think that the 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 journey of a founder it's it's not such thing as a straight line. I mean, it's a you have the highs and you have the lows. But I guess now looking back, was there a moment where you didn't know if there was going to be a tomorrow for Narber? Yeah, I mean, and as going back to early days, you know, you can only think six months out. And yes, you have the conviction and you have the passion, but you have to be very mindful of you know, how you are building and scaling. And sometimes you don't have those proof points. Um, so although we are fortunate that we are able to scale to the stage we are, but, uh, you know, hardest decision for entrepreneurs to keep in mind is that when is the time 
to actually acknowledge that business is not going to scale or is not a viable business. Uh, and while you're keeping the high points and highlights in mind, also knowing that if you are not able to meet some of the milestones and acknowledging that and say this may not be a viable business um, is also having that uh, perspective is important. Um, and, and uh, you know, you oscillate in a given day between those highlights and lowlights and then making sure, um, you know, you persevere. So I guess in your case, when you're experiencing a low, and I guess that some some people that, that are listening, perhaps they can take a page because it's a, there's, there's serious dark days as an entrepreneur. I look, I've, I, I've, I've gone through them myself and they're not fun. But I guess what kind of um, tip or, or I would say guidance would you share with, with founders or perhaps something that you did that worked for you to deal with those days that maybe they can apply for themselves too and push forward? Yeah, I mean, uh, a few, few things that you know, I did, um, you know, if things are not going the way uh, that you were hoping to or you're planning to, um, you know, write, writing it out and, okay, figuring out like, what are the things that are, you know, driving that, um, you know, that uh, result? So, you know, whether you were trying to find a few customers that they're not uh, coming on board, um, you know, are you pushing too hard? Are you get, uh, getting an authentic and a candid feedback? Um, you know, in, in the, I learned that way as well, that um, you know, sometimes, um, you know, uh, you talk to customers, um, they are very gracious uh, to looking at your product but may not give you a candid and honest feedback that you are looking for. Uh, and so we went through the same process. So finding people who can give you candid feedback, whether they are your customers or prospect, prospective customers or your investors or your employees, I think it's important in, in our case, um, having that early feedback, candid feedback from a customer, hey, the product needs to tweak and change to drive some results was important to going back. Uh, to uh, a second time around and driving uh, the business value that we were planning on uh, helped us. So, you know, it, again, um, ev every case might be different, but uh, having that uh, reflection and, and constant uh, test and learn and, and getting the feedback in a candid fashion, uh, at least in my per uh, personal case, was important. Uh, when, when you're down and low to... Uh, you know, uh, to figure out how, what is not working and what are the things that you need to go and address to make it happen. I love it. I love it. So what does um, a world where the vision of Narva is, is fully realized uh, look like? Yeah, I mean, you know, the industry that, you know, we see from the software and technology perspective, there, there are various building blocks uh, out there in building the next generation of uh, you know, farmers and ecosystem. Um, building blocks, like for example, uh, you know, AWS, where you can use technologies uh, uh, in terms of uh, building the next uh, infrastructure. Um, looking at companies like Stripe, where for payment, they have building a, uh, they built a building block where anything to do with payment, you can use Stripe. Uh, you have amazing companies like Twilio for anything for messaging, you have a building block from Twilio where we believe that Narvar is playing a role uh, in that broader ecosystem and we are the building blocks in terms of offering customer experiences, engaging experiences uh, in 
omnichannel world online and in an in-store world so that farmers companies can or and brands and retailers can leverage our uh, platform without going and reinventing that all over again and in that world what happens is that then we democratize some of these things that are that we able to offer that lot of brands and retailers are able to leverage which drives the customer choice and convenience that uh, all of us are looking for and 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 i want to ask you this question as well eh, amit because i i ask this question typically to to my guests uh if i mean you've been at it now with narbar for let's say about seven years since you started so it's it's been quite a ride so i guess i guess with all the learnings that you've gotten with you and and if you had the chance to to talk to your younger self let's say before you were to start narbar and you were able to give yourself one piece of advice before you launched the business what would that piece of advice be and why for for me going back to uh, the basics of you know understanding the business what we started um, and bringing people along with us so the people and the human factor i would say one thing that i would say uh, not only keeping in mind but always being a center point and those people whether it is they're your customers whether they are investors or your employees um you know it's it's easy to say that but doing that on a daily basis is really really hard so every day even now when the business has grown and 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 scale uh, that's the area that i always think about how do you keep that human element in mind um and the role that we play in the community in the business or or, or in our employee face how do we do it better and um you know given if i had to start all over again you know uh, it, whether it is on hiring or having the better communication with our customers or keeping our in, uh, investors informed in a much more proactive fashion all those things uh, i could have done better and that's what i know i strive to do even better now uh, as a company so i guess i guess uh, digging in a little bit deeper on that talking about the human element when you're looking at onboarding people what are what are some of the must traits that you want to see on that individual when you're keeping that human element really in mind yeah i mean uh, so few few things first of all uh, telling um, uh, a, a candidate you know who we are and what we do um, talking about our values uh, of our company talking about our working culture is really important uh, second also asking and having a candid conversation what is that success looks like for that individual that person in a role what are they looking for um and making sure it's a fit having that uh, upfront conversation is really important so for example um one of uh, our values is embrace ambiguity uh, we are in a space which is uh, changing and evolving uh, we in a building innovative technologies um we are in a growth stage companies that means not all the processes are defined not uh, we have all the structures in place so we are fluid and more ambiguous but and if you are uh, a fresh graduate and if you're looking for strong mentorship if you're looking for more guidance we may not be a perfect company for you at this stage and we need to have that upfront conversation that they may be a better fit in a more mature company so these are the things that you know we think about in terms of um, hiring onboarding or even in the candidate interview process 
That's great. Alrighty. So, so Amit, so what is the best way for folks that are listening to reach out and say hi? No, absolutely. And, uh, and I'm happy to share more ex my experiences uh, on a one-on-one -on -one basis as well. So one of the best ways to reach out is via LinkedIn. Drop me a note and happy to connect with you and, and have that uh, continued discussion. Fantastic. Well, Amit, it has been a pleasure to have you on the DealMaker Show. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It, it is, I really enjoyed our conversation. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the DealMakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.